There are those who have come to Canada with nothing. When girls first began to express some interest in me, they would say to my mother, when was Moses born? And she'd say, it was wartime. Maybe not even knowing when they were born. And they'd say, well, was it the morning or, or was it the afternoon or the evening? And she'd say, it was wartime. Winter, summer, fall, <laughs> spring, it was wartime. But the documentation that we eventually arrived in says 42. It's okay with me. Others may have been more established, but still found themselves starting over in a new land. I was disappointed with my qualification and I couldn't get any job. I talked to my brother-in-law. He said, look, when you go anywhere, whatever job you get, you get it. First job. And do not feel shy. Whatever job you get. No matter where you come from or what your situation is, immigration is a new start. For many, a time to dream. And our dreams are as unique as we are. They might take years to come to fruition, but our vision for the future helps sustain us, keeps us moving forward. Today on Countless Journeys, the stories of two different men born just a few years apart, who came to Canada under very different circumstances, and who both built up hugely successful business empires starting from scratch. First, you'll meet broadcaster and publisher Moses Snymer, the man who brought the music video to Canada, along with so many other media innovations. Back when most Canadians had access to only a couple of TV channels, Moses Snymer saw a future filled with channels, each catering to a small slice of the market. And he began launching networks that would do just that. He founded City TV, and then Much Music, Fashion Television, Bravo, and many other networks as well. So I, I always, always preferred being intensely relevant in the lives of 2% than being vaguely of interest in the lives of 20%. You'll also meet Narinder Deer, who was a successful young businessman in Punjab, and then gave it all up to come to Canada, where he started over and met with more success than he could have imagined. My one property become 22 lots, so I started building there, and now touch wood, I am again very well to do. I'm playing in millions. The stories of Moses Nimer and Narinder Deer coming up. Countless journeys. I was fresh, you know, and I was given the opportunity to do and learn whatever I wanted. My grandmother and my family were part of that working class population that people refer to as blue collar workers. I arrived here in December 46 and I will never ever regret it. <laughs> never. Whenever I think of blue collar worker, I think of my grandmother ironing her blue shirt to go to work. Nous sommes venus ici, le Canada nous a donné le meilleur. Alors, donnons au Canada le meilleur. At that time, it was Portuguese women coming to Canada, like my mother. We were coming here to build a better life, but also to help build Canada. J'ai vraiment réalisé la force de ce pays. We live in a country where your beginning has really not much to do with your end. What you do in between is up to you. 
Welcome to Countless Journeys from the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. My name is Paolo Petro Paolo. It's great to have you with me. Uh, one of the great resources at Pier 21 is the Oral History Collection. The museum's oral historians speak with Canadians from all kinds of backgrounds and record interviews with them on their life stories and, and their journeys to Canada. Both stories you'll hear today come from this collection. Moses Snymer was interviewed in 2016 and Narinder Deer in 2014. His son and daughter-in-law also gave interviews to the museum, recorded in 2018, and we'll hear a little bit from his son Robin later in the show. Countless Journeys producer Tina Pitaway joins me now to tell us a little bit more about Moses and Narinder. Welcome, Tina. Hi, Paolo. Great to be back with you and so glad to share these stories from these two really incredible men. I can't wait to hear these stories. Uh, Moses Neimer and Narinder Deer, they, they have very different backgrounds, but there's some, some real similarities to their stories too, wouldn't you say? Yes, there are. As you heard, Moses was born in 1942, or at least that's when he thinks he was born, and Narinder in 1939. Now, Moses and his family were displaced persons who were taken in by Canada after the Second World War. Narinder has a much less dramatic coming to Canada story, but he also had to start from nothing. And the two of them built remarkable businesses through a combination of vision, tenacity, and timing. Really, two examples of, of the great immigration success story, at mm -hmm. least in terms of business. Uh, let's start with Moses Neimer. He may not know exactly when he was born, but I assume he knows where he was born. Yes, he does. And that's a, a really interesting story on its own. His parents, Haya and Aaron, met while they were on the run to safety as the Nazis swept across Europe. Haya was from Poland and Aaron from Latvia. They were trying to make it to Shanghai, which at the time was a safe haven with a substantial Jewish population. That's a, a whole remarkable story in its own right. Many top-notch Jewish musicians made it to Shanghai, and, and that's one way that European classical music started to become popular in China. I had no idea. It's, it's, it's an amazing story, and there were some pretty amazing cultural exchanges that went on in Shanghai. Okay. But, but what about the Zneimers? Did they make it all the way there? No, not even close. Haya got pregnant, actually. Oh, well, I guess... Life has to go on, e even if you're on the run. Yeah. But that, that must have complicated things. It did. Now, obviously, at a certain point, it was hard to keep running. So they stopped in Tajikistan, where Haya gave birth to Moses. What a, an incredible odyssey. Does, does Moses have many memories uh, from that time? He says he has a few memories of his early life in Tajikistan. Um, I have memory of a kind of sun-baked, pretty primitive place village that would be appropriately Tajikistan in the summer. Um, I, I have memories of a kind of mangy, scrappy little dog that I adopted. I, I have memories around food because food was not plentiful. And, and so these are little fragments. By the time we get to the DP camp, though, I'm a little mature adult, and then I have clarity and certainty about my different memories. Hmm, wow. Now, Moses says DP camp. DP stands 
for displaced persons. Uh, this camp that he talks about, where, where was that? That was in West Germany. Moses' parents uh, embarked on what he calls an epic journey back across Europe. More traveling. Yeah, yeah. And they wound up in a, in a camp, which he thinks may have actually been a, a former barracks. Here's one of the stories he remembers. It, it had been a military barrack of some kind. That was the configuration. There were uh, billets where people slept, there was a communal rec hall where people would meet and have their meals. There was a little river running by it uh, in which some retreating army or another had abandoned a fair amount of ammunition. And one of my sharpest recollections had to do with, um, we retrieved some of these shells and, and I was holding one. And, it was fairly sizable, so it must have been like a howitzer shell or something. And I was banging it against a rock, do fireworks or something. And, and some adult saw us in the distance and began to run towards us, hollering. He was obviously trying to save me, but it spooked me. And the kids scattered, and, uh, and I ran. Eventually, I dropped this thing, uh, but ran into a... Uh, an abandoned or bombed out building or something and went up one flight and the second flight and then there was no flight left and I jumped and I kind of woke up afterwards and this was uh, shortly before we were supposed to board the boat that would take us to Canada. Whoa, that's just a crazy story. I mean, to think of a kid walking around with a shell, first of all, but then he, did he say he jumped out of the building? He did. It, it, I mean, it's incredible. It's it's like a scene from a Michael Ondaatje novel. Totally. But but more importantly, was he hurt? Yes, not badly, uh, but enough to cause his parents a lot of stress. Uh, you heard Moses say it was just before they were set to leave for Canada. Yeah. Well, he had to pass a medical to get on the boat. So it was a bit of a disaster for the family because I woke up with a hernia and I had yet to pass my final medical. Uh, eventually they had to like strap me down and because activity agitates that kind of injury. And, uh, and that was part of uh, my very vivid memories about trying to qualify for Canadian immigration. I didn't know it was Canada. I knew we were gonna make a trip. Eventually I learned there was some tests that had to be passed. So there was a lot of concern because of that incident. Not only did he have the injury to hide, he'd also contracted tuberculosis as a child in Tajikistan. Oh my goodness. And was that problematic for the medical as well? Yes, but his parents found an ingenious but kind of dubious way to deal with that. Uh, obviously I survived and I think I was inoculated in a way. If it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. But I carried the trace to this day of the TB. And there are certain tests. I remember the popular test in the 50s, 60s was called a patch test. And on the patch test, I always showed positive, which would alarm everybody within a uh, you know, large distance. And eventually, if I could get to an x-ray, they could see that I was okay. But in any case, uh, at that time, there were fewer x-rays. <laughs> Uh, deployed, and my parents were deathly afraid that I would fail that final test because I carried this trace. And, uh, and we'd never told 
the story before, but they hit on this ingenious way of dealing with the problem, and that is they borrowed the next door's kit. They just substitute a different kit for that particular part of the exam. And, you know, it was pre-internet, and not everybody had a camera on their phone, and photographs weren't actually that plentiful, and one child looks like another. So, uh, with the truss on my hernia and another kid substituted, <laughs> we passed the medical and, uh, and got on that boat. <laughs> That's kind of amazing. So it, obviously it worked. <laughs> it did. Uh, Moses's father had thought about trying to get the family uh, to Israel, but instead they ended up in Canada. How did, how did that come about? Well, it basically came down to what options were available to them in the fall of 1948. Uh, Moses's father uh, was a Zionist, and his first choice was to board a boat to the Middle East, uh, even though he knew others who had tried this had wound up in concentration camps in Cyprus. Oh my, I, didn't, I did not know that was going on. Wow. But w- w- what about his mother? Was, was she on board, so to speak, with, with that notion, or, or did she want to come to Canada? Well, Moses isn't really sure. He says he thinks his mother would have preferred Canada because uh, she was basically done with war and hardship at this point. Uh, But the question became moot because Aaron, his dad, uh, couldn't actually get the family uh, a spot on one of the boats heading to Israel. So Canada it was. So the fact that I spent hours and hours and hours of my teen years watching videos on much music is the direct result of the Zneimers not being able to get passage on a boat to Israel. <laughs> exactly. It's a it's a weird and winding world we deal with. Yeah, and, and, and just, you know, it's, it's amazing to think that these almost arbitrary decisions or, or arbitrary events mm-hmm. that, that happened to, to, to people back in those fraught times. Yeah you know, ended up having such a, an impact on, say, the culture of, of this country yeah, halfway around the world. Exactly. It's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. Does, does Moses have any, any memories of the crossing from Germany to, to, well, where did the boat arrive in Canada? Well, one guess. Pier 21. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> now, Moses does have, uh, he has memories of the journey, uh, which took two weeks. Uh, there were 800 people, in fact, aboard this old troop carrier. Uh, it was called the SS Marine Falcon. Uh, his parents were seasick much of the time, uh, oh. which, which gave him uh, actually a lot of freedom to roam about the ship. Oh, okay. Yeah, I guess so. I guess that, that would probably be pretty amazing for a, for a kid in a way, right? Like who gets that kind of unrestricted movement and lack of supervision anymore? Exactly. Now here's how Moses remembers the trip. And uh, this was like a two-week crossing. So this thing was a slow putt-putt kind of small thing tossed around. And the voyage was wild, as I recall, or at least my parents were deathly ill through the whole thing. And down below... And while I grew up not to have a particularly terrific stomach, in, in fact, if I'm at the controls, I'm in good shape. But if I'm a passenger and someone's attempting a fancy maneuver in an airplane, I would feel seasick. But in any case, during this trip, I, I roamed free around the boat for the two weeks. I'd bring my parents food, whatever they could hold down. Uh, but it was in that two weeks that I learned how to speak English. That's what happened. I hung out with the sailors. Um, but anyways, when we got to the port, I, I had a passable amount of English. 
So they arrive at Pier 21, and this is a funny thing, but it kind of haunts Moses's family. When he checked the archives years later, there was actually no trace of the ship he arrived on. Uh, it was part of a series of ships, uh, and their monthly arrivals are recorded uh, for every month, except for the one in which his family landed. Oh, that's so weird. Does he have any idea why? No, he doesn't. Uh, the family got on a train to Montreal uh, where they had a relative, a great aunt of, of Moses's, uh, who was sponsoring them. Uh, but just as he got off the boat, a photographer took his picture. I emailed you earlier uh, a link to a photo, and I'd just like for you to, uh, to open that link up. Okay, let me, let me go grab this right now. Okay, here we are. Oh my gosh, wow, <laughs> what an image. Isn't that wild? It's totally wild. He's wearing this kind of almost tartan kind of hat and, mm -hmm. and this plaid jacket. Um, it's the cover of a magazine, The Standard Review. The Standard, yeah. And, and he's uh, with a little girl. And he's with a little girl who's also wearing quite an interesting outfit on her dress. There's some pattern that's hard to identify. It almost looks Georgian or something. Yeah. And and, and wow, it's a total photo from a, a, a whole other time, obviously, a whole other world. And that's... Um, that's Adorable, too. And it's being captured. That's just before he stepped onto uh, Canadian soil for the first time. Wow. Wow, that's that's amazing. So this was the weekend insert to all the Saturday papers across the country. It was called The Standard. It was black and white, but it was the largest circulating Canadian magazine of the time. Here he is uh, with the story of his arrival in Canada and the, the moments that that photo was taken, actually. And you'll also hear Emily Burton from the museum. She's the one uh, who uh, conducted the oral history interview. I remember a big shed. I don't remember whether or not we had to stay overnight and whether it was another case of a string of beds or whether we were processed immediately. I don't. Uh, what we have as a remnant of this whole passage is shots of me, um, cute little plaid jacket, and a red cross tag. And, and that's what I was wearing when we came down the gangplank and that picture was taken, which ended up on the front cover of the largest circulating magazine in Canada at the time. And I had this little girl by the hand. People say prophetic. <laughs> and uh, the photograph said displaced person with the future. Yeah, DP. Right? DP, DP with, with future. future. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. Prophetic indeed. And, and a, a media star already. So uh, so the family settled then, uh, in Montreal then? They, they did, uh, living for a while on St. Urbain Street, uh, which had a thriving Jewish community. And that, that, that street will be familiar to anyone who's read Mordecai Richler's books. That's right, like St. Urbain's Horseman. Uh, Moses' dad had dreamed of being an opera singer. Huh. Uh, Moses remembers him singing in the shower, uh, but he got a job as a shoe salesman, uh, and his mother became a waitress at a steakhouse. So did, did, did Moses settle in? Did he, did he go to school? Did he, did he feel like he belonged in this new world? Well, at the time, Montreal had Catholic and Protestant school boards. Uh, if you weren't Catholic or Protestant, you were out of luck. But Moses's parents, uh, they saved up and sent him to a private Jewish school where he developed good study habits, uh, good enough actually to get him into McGill. Hmm, impressive. And you asked about fitting in. Uh, Moses says one thing he resisted from the start uh, was anglicizing his name. Now, that's common for a lot of immigrants, of course, but he wasn't having it. You know, one of the first things that people tried to do when I arrived at the Talmud Torah was to anglicize my name. 
And so they attempted to turn me into a Milty or a Michael or a Morris, even Mickey. They tried Mickey and Max, but I refused them all. So that's a moment where you make a stand, you know, you're just a kid, but no, my name is Moshe. That's the Yiddish version of Moshe, which is the Hebrew original version of Moses. Moise in French, Moises in Spanish, and so I insisted on Moshe, which was my diminutive Yiddish, and I actually spelt my name M-O-I-S-H-E until I graduated high school, and I remember the day I went down to McGill to start enrolling for all of those classes, I thought, now I'm a grown-up now, and I began to sign Moses. Yeah, well, good for him. I mean, I I can relate. I, I have to confess to that story. Uh, I'm kind of glad he stuck to stuck to his beliefs there that he wanted to have to be known by his birth name. Uh, good for him. So, so he he graduated from McGill, I, I assume. He did, uh, and then he went for what he describes as the most glamorous degree around, uh, which was at Harvard. That's that's pretty glamorous <laughs> in the world of academia. So, this would have been in, in the 1960s, uh, right? That's right. And after he graduated, he went to Ottawa, uh, thought about the Foreign Service. The Foreign Service, for real. That's pretty different from where he ended up. Yeah, absolutely. It sure is. And and he talks about meeting people, kind of getting passed around from uh, kind of one uh, contact to the next. And after a bit, he realized that the Foreign Service was really not for him. Uh, too slow and stodgy uh, is kind of uh, how he saw it. But he landed an interview uh, at the CBC uh, and he got hired uh, and he was on his way. Broadcast, relatively speaking, even radio was new, and TV was really new. And so, eventually, that's where I landed. <laughs> the the start of, a, of an incredible story in Canadian media uh, history. Uh, yeah. Now, we know that he founded City TV in 1971, so I'm guessing that he, he didn't last long at CBC. Well, he got into trouble uh, almost immediately. Uh, oh, by, really? <laughs> yes, yeah, a couple of things. But the one that we'll uh, mention is uh, he did a call-in show on whether Canada should get rid of the monarchy, uh, which was a real no-no <laughs> at the time. I mean, it's almost, it's it's kind of taboo even today. But back in like the late 60s or 1971, uh, it was definitely not wow. uh, a thing to talk about. Well, that takes some chutzpah to do that. But they didn't fire him. No, uh, he, he said the only reason he kept his job uh, was that if he'd been fired, uh, a whole bunch of other people who were supposed to be keeping an eye on him uh, would have had to lose their jobs as well. So he got another chance. Uh, Moses says uh, that autonomy has always been really important to him. Uh, and he's a guy who, who he likes to make things happen, obviously. Clearly. And yeah. meanwhile, he was working at the CBC, which was very much a pay your dues, uh, bide your time kind of place. I can see how that might not be a good fit for somebody with that kind of personality. Well, here's Moses on why he left the CBC. And, and eventually this one fellow who was fairly high up in the current affairs, public affairs department took me out for lunch and basically said, what's all this striving and just mind your P's and Q's, you're doing well and in five or ten years you can have my job. And I remember thinking, imagine that, I can have his job in only five or ten years, and I quit the next day. 
wow, in that story, you can you can really get a sense of of the type of personality he had, almost almost the type of personality that it takes to, to to take a bunch of risks in order to go down the road that that he went down. Oh, sure, like not the kind of guy that fills out time cards. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, soon after, uh, he got a job in finance, and then he heard that a bunch of uh, broadcast licenses were coming available, which doesn't really happen much anymore. Uh, and and so he decided to apply for one. And and then that became City TV, and and then a whole bunch of other channels. He really changed the world of broadcasting in Canada, wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I studied uh, radio and television back in the 80s at Ryerson, and uh, I've been in media my whole life. And, and it's not an understatement to say that Moses Neimer is, a, is an icon in Canadian broadcasting. Like he's, he's, he was so forward thinking, and he really changed the landscape. Um, now, he was a pioneer of the multi-channel universe, uh, as we've touched on. So it's interesting that uh, later in his life, he also started up a print venture, especially since when he was younger, he found print really too hierarchical. You did, you did say he likes autonomy. Right. But in 2008, uh, he founded Zoomer Media, uh, and its flagship publication is Zoomer Magazine. Now, today, a lot of people use Zoomer and Generation Z, Gen Z interchangeably uh, for younger people. But for Moses, Zoomer was a play on Boomer, as in baby boomers, uh, people who were older, active, but who most media uh, just weren't catering to. It's, it's kind of funny because when he started that magazine, it's almost like a, an invisible demographic, even though those were people who, who, who were probably at the peak of their careers at the time. Yeah, that was his thought exactly. I, I mean, in a way, uh, he's been catering to this audience uh, for his whole life. Uh, they've just gotten older. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Uh, you know, uh, Tina, I want to go back to, to one thing you said a little bit earlier. Okay. Uh, it's about the ship that Moses and his family came over on uh, to Halifax. Uh-huh. The fact that it wasn't registered in the Pier 21 archives. Yeah, he called it a phantom boat. You said his family was haunted by that for a bit. What did you mean by that? Well, it's tied in uh, with a fear of being undocumented. Uh, remember, Moses, uh, he doesn't know uh, exactly when he was born. So it's like this shadow uh, hanging over his family, uh, this fear that they could be sent back uh, because of someone accusing them of not being here uh, legitimately. Hmm. So at this point, there is no birth certificate for Moses Neimer. And... As far as I understand, there's no record of the boat landing, so probably there's no record of me landing. I kind of like that idea. But you, you should know that until the day she died, my mom was really concerned that the knock would come on the door and the authorities would say, you didn't quite tell the whole truth on that medical exam, or the papers are a little dodgy, and that they would send us back. So that's a testimony to Canada that I feel perfectly calm telling these stories. I don't think, I hope, no one's going to send me back. The incredible story of Moses Snymer. Uh, Tina, thanks for, for sharing the story of Moses Snymer. Thank you, Paolo. Next, another great immigration success story from the other side of the country, the story of Narinder Deer. Uh, 
Today, Narinder is a very successful developer who lives in Burnaby, BC. After coming to Canada from India, he founded a company called Twin Brooks Developments, which has been the foundation of his success. Today, it's run by his son, Robin. Uh, Narinder was born in 1939 in Punjab. Uh, Tina, what was his childhood like? Did he experience violence and conflict in his childhood uh, the way that Moses Snymer did? Well, indirectly, because his parents kept him at home to shield him from the violence around them. His his family wasn't wealthy, but they were landowners. Uh, they had agricultural holdings. Uh, now, when Narinder was just eight years old, British colonial rule in India ended. Uh, the British partitioned the region into India and Pakistan. Uh, a huge amount of violence and turmoil and and death. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, it was it was horrendous. Uh-huh. Uh, and mass migration ensued. Yeah, truly one of the 20th century's yeah. uh, most insane events. Uh, how did the, that affect Narendra's family? Well, he was eight years old at the time. Uh, and as I said, his parents shielded him from much of what was going on. But the workers in the family's fields uh, were mostly Muslim. So one immediate after effect uh, was that they left for Pakistan. Uh, and that had a huge impact on the business. Uh, you know, you lose your labor, like you're... you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when he got a bit older, uh, Narinder had to find his own way. Uh, he got a job in Assam, uh, a state in northeastern India, and then he started his own business. Uh, and one of the signs of his success was that he bought a car, the first car in town. So I just uh, was able to buy a Jeep for my traveling there, and there were only three Jeeps in the town. Then I happened to buy a car to take it back to my place in Sultanpur, where I see that we were looking to a poor side. So I wanted to show my community, my relatives, everybody that if you work hard, you can achieve. So I brought that car and at that time there was no car in my town. That was the first car. I still remember 245, NLK 245 from Nagaland. <laughs> that's, that's crazy that he still remembers the license plate <laughs> number. I mean, I mean that ca- must have caused quite a sensation in town. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and I, uh, do you remember the license plate of your first car? I certainly do not. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so Narinder was doing well in business, but, but why did he give it all up to, to come to Canada? Well, immigration wasn't uh, originally on his mind. He just decided to come uh, visit a sister here, actually. In 1968, she had married an Indian man living in Vancouver, and she said she loved the city, but she was feeling lonely because Vancouver, well, it, it was a very... Uh, different place at the time. There were not as many uh, South Asians or people of South Asian descent around uh, as there are today. Uh, so in 1969, uh, Narinder came to visit and he liked it. Yes, she was. She came here and she was missing a whole family. And she actually she cried. She said, I miss my whole family. There's no one here. I can talk to them. My language even. Because at that time in Vancouver, hardly you can see people from India, but there were some Sikh people, they were living in villages in where there are mills, they used to go and work in the mills, but hardly you'll find anybody, your friends here in Vancouver. So she cried a few times and she said, why don't you come and meet me? 
So I decided to come here. So when I came here, I was astonished to see that Vancouver is one of the best city. I have never imagined that I, I can be in this city. So he stayed uh, with his wife, Prem, uh, and their five-month-old daughter. Uh, but it wasn't easy in the beginning. He really struggled on the work front. Tell me a, b- a bit more about that. Uh, why couldn't he find a job? I mean, I know it's harder sometimes for, for new Canadians to find jobs. And I imagine in Vancouver in 1969, that was probably much more the case even than today. But, but were there other reasons? Well, Narinder says he thinks he was overqualified and that in some of his early job interviews, uh, he talked about having been well-established in India. And so he took his brother's advice uh, and he got a job at a car dealership, essentially uh, as a jack-of-all-trades. Uh, here's how he describes it. So my first job I got on Burrard, Vancouver, Burrard Street. They were opening Vancouver Auto. First, Mercy BMW car agency in Vancouver at that time. So I started my life there. They asked me to wash cars, clean floors, but I was feeling inside very much ashamed that I belong to a very good family, what is happening. But the owner advised me, he said, I came to this country. My wife was working in, in a rich man's house. I was going to university. I'm a German, I learned lots of English here, and I work hard, I'm a mechanic, now I'm a partner of this company. If you want to succeed in Canada, everybody is equal, you are to set your own goal. You are to work hard and no shame, nothing. So I took a lesson from him. Oh, wow, that's, that's fascinating. Uh, Narinder did take the first job that came along, as his brother suggested, washing cars and that kind of job. And then when his boss recognized that he wasn't particularly pleased, uh, his boss shared his own story for encouragement. Yeah, that really resonated when I when I heard this for the first time, too. And, and you know, Narinder didn't spend a whole lot of time washing cars. What did, what did he move on to next? Well, he worked for a series of companies, uh, wound up in a quality control position at a global pharmaceutical firm. Narinder had taken English lessons in night school, and Prem signed up for free lessons uh, provided for the government. Uh, she also got a job as a seamstress. Uh, meanwhile, Narinder started buying and selling some land, and in 1972, he bought a place that actually turned out to be of historical significance, uh, although he didn't realize it at the time. And later date, when I went to the community, I met each people's hardly there was anybody else to talk over then i met few peoples in my community and start getting together meeting together each other and talk about our culture and start thinking about to get together a place so we start renting a place for 15 dollars and get together then we decided to buy a place for our cultural and uh, religious praying place, which we bought, I think, in 1972. It was in Burnley, 3885 Albert Street, Burnley. This is the, now this is said to be the first temple in Hindu temple in Canada, as far as I know. So you can see Narinder has a head for numbers. He remembers... No kidding. He remembers the <laughs> license number of his first car, the address of the building. So, so he helped open what would become the first Hindu temple in Canada. 
He thinks. Uh, for sure, it's the first in B.C. Is, is he a, a religious man? He says he's not particularly religious. He takes a very broad view of religion, uh, sees it uh, as an important part of his culture, and he believes uh, that all religions uh, essentially are about helping others and allowing people to flourish in their communities. There's, there's really no denying the incredible role that religion can play in knitting together a, a community. Yeah, absolutely. And now in, in this interview, Narinder didn't say much about uh, how he built his business success. He's a really modest guy. Uh, he says he bought and sold some land and then he started buying commercial properties and apartment buildings and developing subdivisions. Uh, he ran into some trouble in the 80s when uh, interest rates really spiked. Um, but he's done very, very well since. Uh, he's more interested in talking about his family's charitable work, though. Helping. Child Foundation. I was first uh, director to serve on the board, and now they have collected about $30 million to assist children's health. But I have for now, due to my eyes and due to my age, I'm 75 now, so I am not helping them, but I have helping Children's Hospital with my son. He is the first Asian gala dinner, black tie dinner, and collecting $5 million for Children's Hospital, and now they appointed him as a Board of Governors because he's very hardworking to assist this cause. So Narinder was born in 1939, and he's now retired, and his son is the one who's actively running the business today. Uh, th those kinds of generational transitions in family businesses can sometimes be hard. Did Narinder talk about whether they faced any of those issues? He didn't, but I would assume it's all good because Narinder and Prem, uh, they live in a multi-generational household, uh, actually, with Robin and his wife, Rena, uh, and with their three kids. And the reason for that is largely cultural. For the grandkids, uh, here's Robin. Yeah, so it's, 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 it's a dear family home. Uh, uh, my parents, Narinder and Prem, uh, and the five of us um, with our three kids, we live together. It was a decision, something we talked about originally that, and, and that we talked about of, of how we would like to progress and, and move in life. What we did want is the kids to be able to grow up with that culture, the language, the history, and learning about the different um, uh, days and special days that come within the year. And so call it selfishly or call it because we wanted it. Um, we did do that. Her parents live very close to now that they've, uh, they've um, retired and, and, and they're just in Surrey here and not too far away. But we wanted the kids to, again, have that familial um, understanding and that culture and language and everything else. And it's great now because, you know, um, perhaps if it was just us living on our own, I mean, we typically communicate in English maybe the kids may, maybe wouldn't have picked up as much of that. But now the kids, when they're speaking with us, they'll typically speak in English. But when they're talking to the parents, even though their parents speak English, they, they will talk to them in Punjabi. I love that. What, a, what better way to maintain culture and tradition? And close family ties, too. Yeah. Uh, Tina, thank you so much. Uh, hearing these stories has been great. Thank you, Paolo. My name is Paolo Pietro Paolo. That's all for season two of Countless Journeys. Thanks for being with me for these wonderful and inspiring stories about immigration. Countless Journeys is produced by Tina Pitaway and Phil Moscovich, and mixed by Natasha Aziz for the Canadian Museum of Immigration at Pier 21. To learn more about the museum, visit pier21.ca. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to like, share, and follow. Take care. Bye for now.